Well, good morning and welcome. So great to see uh, so many of you out there. I think we have every single chair out this morning, so that's another first, Daniel. Uh, we've never done that before, but what a beautiful day to be gathered together uh, to worship our Lord. And let me just add my two cents worth, too. What a blessing um, last Sunday was uh, just to be up front here and see so many people coming forward, uh, so many baptisms, both planned and unplanned. That was the amazing thing. And moms and dads and sisters and brothers and kids. I've been a Christian over 35 years, and I honestly don't think I've ever seen such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like I saw last Sunday. And if you've been marveling like I have been, uh, and a lot of us here have been, at what happened and wondering why, um, God's kind of led me to a real simple answer. It's really a great formula for how to have a, have a thriving church, and it is what we seek to do here, and that is to just keep lifting Jesus up, and then his Holy Spirit will keep showing up to do a mighty work. Amen? It's as, it's as simple as that, and, and that's my prayer for this morning. So let me uh, open our time in the Word in prayer as well, please. Father God, we invite you here this morning, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit would um, fill this place again, Lord, um, as we lift up your son Jesus on high, Lord. He is the one alone who deserves our worship, alone who deserves our praise, alone who deserves our allegiance. Lord, and help us to come to him with the right hearts this morning as we see in your word, as he teaches us on that. Help us to come as little children, just humbly and depending on you. Uh, and may we be filled with your spirit, and may we go from this place, Lord, to glorify you and magnify your name. And it's in your amazing name that we pray. Amen. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Mark chapter uh, 10. That's where we'll be this morning. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 22. And, you know, we talk a lot here about bringing the real you to the real Jesus. And we saw a lot of people actually doing that in a physical, tangible way um, last Sunday. We're going to see three different types of people do that this morning in our section of Scripture, but only one of those groups is going to come the right way. Because here's the thing, here's what we really need to know, and that is you can bring the real you to the real Jesus, but you've still got to come the right way, or else you will miss out on entering his kingdom. And that's the message he has for, this, for us this morning from his word. The title of the message this morning is Coming to Jesus. So in our first section of Scripture, we're going to see the Pharisees, the religious leaders, we've talked about them before, come to Jesus. In the second section, we're going to see little children come to Jesus. And in the third section, we're going to see someone that's called the rich young ruler come to Jesus. And guess who are the only ones who come the right way? You know who it is? It's the children. The religious leaders miss it. The rich, young, and powerful guy misses it but the simple little children get it right. So we have a few things to learn from them this morning. Now here's the context and the setting for what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus has just finished up his time at Capernaum, where we saw at the end of chapter 9, he taught on heaven and hell. And then Mark 10.1 says this at the beginning of our passage. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So, Jesus was leaving Capernaum. He was crossing the Jordan River to go to Judea. And this reminds us that he is on his way to Jerusalem, where he would offer himself up 
as a sacrifice for sin. And he did that in order to keep those who believed in him out of that place that he had just taught on called hell and to get them into that place in the glory of heaven that he had also taught on. And so by the time chapter 11 starts, Mark's going to record the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what we just celebrated a few weeks ago as Palm Sunday. Because remember, the central reason why Jesus came from heaven to earth to save sinners like you and me was to go to a cross and to die to pay our debt to God for our sin and then to be resurrected three days later to give us new life as children of God. Now note also that verse 1 says that as the crowds came to him, he taught them, and then it says, as was his custom. So why was that? Why was it his custom? Well, it was because beyond the healings, beyond the miracles that Jesus did, he wanted people to know the truth about God and about themselves, and most importantly about their need for salvation, and that he had come to give them that by trusting in him as their Lord and Savior. That was the central purpose of his mission here on earth, and that kind of sums up what our central purpose should be is as followers here on earth, doesn't it? Now, let's look first at the Pharisees. And in verses 2 to 12, we're going to see them come to Jesus. And in his interaction with them, we're going to learn something about another topic, marriage and divorce. But I believe much more importantly, we're going to learn something about how not to come to Jesus. So let's read those next verses, verses 2 to 12 next. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, before we begin going through this, let me say something first that's very important. There are probably many people here this morning who have been through a divorce. Some of you may have done the divorcing. Others of you may have had the divorcing done to you. And either way, it can be a difficult and painful thing. But remember this. God loves you. God forgives you. And God gives us a thousand second chances. So the point of this this morning as we look at this is not to condemn you or make you feel bad. But since this scripture is here, just like the section was on hell a few weeks ago, we need to address it so that we can get God's view on it. Now, first of all, if we were to do an exhaustive study on it, we would see that there are only two places that the scriptures allow for divorce. One is in Matthew 19.9, in the case of where a person is married to an unrepentant adulterer. Doesn't mean that a one-night stand gets you a ticket to divorce court. No, it means an unrepentant adulterer, someone who will not come out of that lifestyle. And then secondly, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, 
when a believing spouse is completely abandoned by an unbelieving spouse and will not come back. But Malachi 2, which, by the way, we're doing on our blog series that all of us pastors write. Daniel's going to write on this this week, so I encourage you to look at it online. Malachi 2 tells us that divorce is never, ever God's heart. In fact, he hates it, and he would rather have us reconcile and forgive. But even though God hates divorce, he still allows for it in those two circumstances I mentioned because... As verse 5 of our text says, of our hardness of heart, not his heart, but our heart. And as verse 6 reminds us of our text, divorce was never God's heart because it says, but from the beginning of creation, God did all this, that a man would cleave to his wife. So divorce was not part of his original intent when he created marriage. Now, something that helps us to understand God's heart on this is to understand God's high view of marriage. It's one of my favorite things to teach on is is marriage. So let me run through some of the ways that we see God's high view of marriage in Scripture. First of all, marriage was God's idea. Man didn't come up with this. God invented it. And God invented it to address the first thing that he saw that was not good in his creation. And that was that Adam was alone and was feeling lonely. God also invented marriage to reflect his glory. It's not just all about us. For the Bible says that God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. So the image of God is in males in a unique God-given way, and it's in females in a unique God-given way. And as a male and a female come together, as husband and wife in marriage, then we have the fullest expression possible of the image of God here on earth. Then think of this. Marriage was the first human relationship that God created before he created the relationship of parent and child or brothers and sisters or friend and friend. He created husband and wife. Likewise, marriage was the first institution that God created before he created the institution of family or the institution of government or even the institution of the church. Before all of those, he created the institution of marriage. Marriage is also the only relationship and the only institution that God created before the fall of man. Now, marriage is also the most important and truly the closest human relationship that God created. More important and closer than that of parent and child. For in the marriage command, as we just read here, a man is told to leave his mother and father and to cleave to his wife. Marriage is also the relationship that God used throughout the Old Testament to picture his relationship with Israel, and in the New Testament it's used to picture our relationship with Christ. There are two whole books of the Bible all about marriage. One of them is the Song of Solomon, which is about the intimacy of marriage. And the other is Hosea, where God uses the commitment of Hosea to his wayward, and may I say it, even adulterous wife, to picture his commitment to wayward Israel. When a man was newly married in the Old Testament, the law provided that he was to be given a whole year off from any military service or any civil service. Why? So that he might enjoy time with his wife. In Malachi 2.14, God says that marriage is a covenantal relationship. 
which is the same kind of relationship that he has with us, and that he is a witness to it. And then in Malachi 2.15, it says that marriage is a union of the husband and wife with a portion of the Holy Spirit. That means God's Holy Spirit is in each and every marriage. And he then describes divorce in the next verse, verse 16, as literally being an act of violence because it is a tearing apart of that union. Marriage is so important that 1 Timothy 4.3 tells us that one of the signs of the end times is when people, particularly teachers and leaders, will start forbidding marriage. One of my favorites is this. The first recorded miracle of Jesus in the Bible was where? At a wedding feast when he turned the water jugs into wine. And once the church, as we see in the New Testament, is called the Bride of Christ, is fully gathered in heaven, we're all going to be going to what? The wedding feast of the Lamb. I could go on and on. There's another reason that God has such a high view of marriage. And verse 9 of our text says that he brought you and your spouse together. You know, you may have met on a blind date or an event of some sort or maybe been introduced by friends. You may have met on Hinge or eHarmony or some other dating app. But the truth is, no matter how you met, God brought you together and joined you in marriage. Look at the first marriage in the Bible, Adam and Eve. How did they meet? Well, God did some surgery on Adam, didn't he, while he was asleep. And when he woke up, there was Eve. And I love how Greg Laurie explains this, that event. He says, look, if you're single and you want to be married, there is no need to stress out. God brought Adam a wife. While he was sleeping, he wasn't even doing anything. And if he will do that for Adam, certainly he will take care of you too. Just focus, like Adam was in the garden before the fall, on your relationship with God and on serving him as Adam was tending the garden. And God will then bring you someone who is a helper suitable for you. Now, we also see in our text this morning that God designed there to be a permanency to marriage. For verse 7 says that when a man leaves his father and mother, he is then to hold fast to his wife. And at the end of Genesis 2, which is where Jesus is quoting from, the English translation of the Hebrew reads that a man is to cleave to his wife. You've probably heard that phrase before, to cleave to his wife. Well, that Hebrew word that's translated as cleave literally meant to be glued together and to be permanently glued together so tightly that it would be or it would take a cleaver like one of those big butcher's knives to actually separate you because you are so close that as this verse says you are one flesh in my nearly 30 years of being a pastor and an elder my wife and i have done a lot of marriage counseling and we have other pastors and their wives here along with us we'll do the same thing at ccpv and we encourage you to come talk to us if there are issues because we want to help you with those but there's one thing that we always want to make clear at the beginning, and that is that we're going to be advocates for your marriage, not for one of you against the other, because God has such a high view of marriage, and that's how we all should be, is advocates for marriage. Now, there are actually a whole lot more ways in which Scripture reveals God's high view of marriage. I've just covered a few of them, but that ought to be enough for us to get the picture that he has this very high view of marriage 
And if God has that, then we as his followers ought to have the same view. But I don't want us to miss out on what is in these verses about the way the Pharisees came to Jesus, because that's the big picture here. Look at verse 2. It says that they came to him in order to test him. Brothers and sisters, may I just say that that is the wrong way to come to Jesus. Satan came to Jesus that way in Matthew 4 when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. We don't want to be like Satan when we come to Jesus. In addition, the Pharisees came as skeptics. After all, it is okay to ask Jesus questions. In fact, God invites us in Isaiah 1.18 to come reason together with him. And there's many people in Scripture who ask some really good questions for some really good reasons from which we got some great answers and we've all benefited from. Because great revelation is given to us in the answers. Think of Thomas in John 14 asking Jesus to show us the way. And then we get that great statement that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Or think of Thomas in John 20 asking to see the holes in his hands and the holes in his side. Great question so Jesus can explain what happened to him. Or think of the woman in the well, at the well in John 4, who asks, how do I get this living water? And what is this living water that you're talking about? And then he gets to share that he is the one who gives that living water. And ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit that causes that living water to come out of us. You see, if our motive in coming to Jesus with questions is truly to know the truth and truly to understand him more and who he is, then he welcomes our questions. But if we come to Jesus as skeptics, then our hearts won't be right, and we will miss out on ever really knowing him as our Lord and Savior. And quite frankly, we will always just see him as an adversary, just as Satan does and just like the Pharisees did here. The Pharisees also came to Jesus in the way of religion. Because their primary interest, as you look here, was in seeking to know the rules. They're going, wait a minute, Jesus, what about this rule? Aren't we supposed to follow this rule? You see, their interest was in knowing the rules. It wasn't in knowing God and here Jesus is the rule giver. Look at verse 2 where they asked, is it lawful? You see, the law is good because it came from God and it reveals his holiness, but there is no eternal life in the law. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees in John 5.39, where he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they, the scriptures, that testify about me, and yet you won't come to me. So eternal life is found only in Jesus, and so the way to come to Jesus is to come seeking to know him, not all the rules. He'll teach you the rules later, but if you miss him, you've missed the entire thing. And now to children, which are really my favorite part. And let me just put a plug in here for our children's ministry that I'm sure would help Leah out a lot. My wife and I were blessed to minister for many years in children's ministry at another church. It was a, it's a great way to learn how to teach the Bible. There's no one more eager or willing to hear about Jesus than a kid. And, and it, it's just a great way to learn how to do that. They're so hungry. And kids will bless you in so many ways you don't know because they have an amazing ability to be these little pint-sized evangelists and get into nooks and crannies in their families' lives that you can't get into as a big adult. And we would hear so many stories of a kid coming to know Jesus and then going back and sharing with 
mom or dad or brother and sister or a neighbor, and someone else coming to Christ, reaching people we never could have possibly reached as adults. The other way they'll bless you, and we're going to come back and talk about this attribute of kids in a minute, is they are so open, they are so transparent, they are so real. They don't have all the, the cover-ups that we often have as adults. And so when you pray with kids, and they're amazing to pray with, which you get to do every Sunday if you serve here in children's ministry, you'll hear some amazing things, and actually, frankly, some pretty funny things. Two of my favorite ones, one time praying with a kid who was trying to pray the Lord's Prayer, and he said, Our Father who art in heaven, how'd you know my name? <laughs> and I thought, what a beautiful expression. He does know our name, you know, right? But, but from a kid. And then the other one that really shows how transparent kids are and how there's no guile or cover-ups in them was the little boy who came in one morning saying, teacher, teacher, guess what? Guess what? My daddy got to sleep in the car last night. And we're going, oh, I don't think your mommy wanted us to know that. But uh, anyways, they're very transparent, speaking of marriage, that something had happened the night before. So sign up for children's ministry. Guarantee you, um, you will be totally blessed. Now, I've got a unique problem here, Daniel. My iPad needs to cool down before I can read from it. So can I get my phone, and I'll try reading the rest of Scripture from that. <laughs> That's never happened before. We're going to go next to um, the next section of Mark. Um, let me just get us there. Give me one second. So we're going to go to Mark uh, 10 and look at our next section of verses. Um, which is 13 through 16. And it says this, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, you may be thinking, wow, that's a strange transition. God, why would you write your word that way? Why are you going from divorce to children? Well, it's not really strange because here's the thing. Who are the truest victims in divorce but children? And oh, how Jesus loves little children. For here in verse 14, we see him rebuke even his own disciples when they try to prevent the little children from coming to him. But then most importantly, in verse 15, Jesus says that unless we receive the kingdom of God like a little child, we shall never enter it. So what is it about little children and how they are coming to him that pictures how we must come into the kingdom of God? Well, first note something here in verse 13 about how these little children are being brought to Jesus that should jump right out at us. It says there that it is so that he might touch them. Now, could you imagine that ever occurring in our culture, that someone would bring their child to a complete stranger to be touched by them? Not only that, but every child is taught in school, and for good reason, not to trust strangers. But here these children, and their parents for that matter, because they're bringing them, come to Jesus trusting him. Unlike the Pharisees who came as skeptics, doubting him. And in like manner, you see, we need to come to Jesus in faith, which is simply another way of saying trusting him. 
Beyond that, let's think of some of the general characteristics of most children that picture how we must come to Jesus. First of all, kids are a pretty humble lot, aren't they? You know, they know that they're not big and powerful and strong. And as a result, kids are pretty dependent little people, aren't they? Well, you see, that is how we must come to Jesus, in humble dependence upon him, not in prideful independence. For the Bible says in several places that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace, what we all need, to the humble. Related to that, kids are generally pretty helpless, aren't they? And they know they can't help themselves. And we, too, need to come to Jesus, acknowledging our inability, our complete spiritual poverty, and our inability to help ourselves, especially when it comes to what we need most, which is salvation. That's what it means in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and spiritual poverty. For theirs, he says, is the kingdom of heaven. Now, kids are also usually always hungry, aren't they? I mean, any time is food time, right, if you're with little kids? Well, in the same way, we need to come to Jesus hungry for more of him and for what he has to offer, which is salvation and transformation and truth. On top of that, one thing you learn definitely if you do children's ministry is kids are a whole lot happier and thankful than adults usually are. I mean, when you pray with a little kid, almost every time what you're going to hear them say is, God, Thank you for this day. When's the last time you or I did that, right? You see, kids are thankful for every little thing. And in a like manner, we need to come to Jesus thankful, thankful for our salvation. So besides trusting that we mentioned, there's four H's here so far. Humble, helpless, hungry, and happy. You want to capture this. So trusting, humble, helpless, hungry, and happy. Let me share a couple more things about children that picture how we must come to Jesus. Kids are, as I mentioned earlier, like the little guy excited about his daddy getting to sleep in the car that night before. Kids are pretty transparent. I mean, there's very little guile or trying to hide who they are in a child. There's no pretense about them where they're trying to pretend to be someone that they're not. And as we keep saying, we're going to bring the real us, not a fake us or a pretend us, to the real Jesus. No reason to put on fakes with God or errors with God. He knows it all anyway. So you can lay it out who you are before Jesus when you come to him. And he'll accept and he'll listen and he'll guide and he'll counsel and he'll save and he'll forgive and he'll encourage and he'll bless. Lastly, this is one of my favorite ones. Children, especially when they're young, tend to derive their very identity from their parents more so than they do from themselves. We have phrases that capture that, like he's or she's daddy's girl or he's mommy's boy, because kids, when they're really little, tend to think of themselves first in relationship to their parents, not in their own self-identity. And that's exactly what Jesus wants from us, that we would lose ourselves, as we saw a few weekends ago, and find our identity in him. Now, there's probably many more parallels between the general attributes of children and how we are to come to Jesus. But let's just keep these seven in mind for now. Trusting, humble, helpless, hungry, happy, transparent, and finding our identity in Jesus. Finally, let's look next at this guy we call 
the rich young ruler in verses 17 through 22. It says there, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, first of all, why is this guy called the rich young ruler? Well, in verse 20, he refers to his, his youth, so we know he was probably young. In verse 22, we see that he had a lot of possessions. And then in the parallel passage in Luke 18, we're told that he was also a ruler. So think about this. He basically had everything that is most highly prized and sought after in our culture. He had lots of money. He still had his youth. And he had power since he was a ruler. But he knew that he was still missing something. Or in other words, in the words of the famous U2 song, he still hadn't found what he was looking for, which we see in verse 17 was eternal life. For he comes running up to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So from his experience, we should be able to see that money isn't everything. Having our youth isn't everything, and having power isn't everything. In fact, all of those things taken together like he had them will still leave you feeling pretty empty on the inside. Now, note that he also basically interrupts Jesus here. For verse 17 says that Jesus was just setting off on his journey, which, as we saw earlier, was on the way to Jerusalem. But look at what that tells us about Jesus, how he responds. Jesus doesn't brush him off and say, get out of here. i got to catch the 1030 bus to Jerusalem. No. Jesus stops and takes time with him. Jesus is patient and he's kind. And you know what? He's always got time for just one more person that comes to him and wants to dialogue with him. He's never too busy for you. He's never more than just a prayer call away. And it's not like you'll get a busy signal. He's always there. Now, besides knowing that this man was empty on the inside, or knowing himself that he was empty on the inside, this guy actually got a few more things right in how he approached Jesus before we look at what he got wrong. For we also see in verse 17 that he knelt before Jesus. That means he, he bowed, he fell to his knees. That means he showed respect. He also called Jesus good, which is very true, but look at what Jesus does with that statement. He uses it to show that he, Jesus, is actually God. For he responds to the man in verse 18, not by denying that he's good, but simply saying that no one is good except God alone, which is a clear claim to deity on the part of Christ. And most likely, part of why this was done is that the man didn't fully understand who Jesus truly was. For in verse 17, the man refers to Jesus as a teacher. And as we know, he is so much more than that. 
Yes, he taught good things, but that's not the primary reason why he came. Lots of people teach good things. Yes, he was a prophet, but we've had lots of prophets. The primary reason he came and the reason that distinguishes him from anybody else in any religion is he came to save us. He came to be a savior, and he came to be our Lord. And this man didn't understand that, and this was Jesus' way of waking up, him up to the fact that he, Jesus, was actually God in human flesh. But now, let's see what this man's biggest mistake was and how he came to Jesus. And it's found in something in the wording of the question that he asked Jesus in verse 17. Now, he knew that he didn't have eternal life, and that was good because at least he recognized the problem, and that's half the battle. Many people don't even get that far. But he mistakenly thought that he could do something about it. So look at how he phrases his question. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the funny thing is, there's really nothing you can do to inherit something, because that has something to do with your being born into the right family. But he still has this thought that he could do something to inherit eternal life. You see, this guy was an achiever, clearly. Look at all he'd accomplished in his life. He'd managed to get money while he was still young. Not many people get to do that. That eludes most of us. He'd managed to get power while he was also still young. If he were here today, he'd probably be like some Silicon Valley tech superstar who'd founded the next big dot-com company, and as soon as his company went public, became an overnight billionaire. That would be a modern-day version of this rich young ruler. And so he thought that if he put his mind and energy and skill to it, just like he'd done with everything else, he could get eternal life, sort of in the same way that someone like Elon Musk is probably one day going to actually get us to Mars. But eternal life doesn't work that way. It's not achievable. It's not earnable. It's a free gift, and it's found in Jesus. Now, look at what else this guy says down in verse 20. He claims to have actually kept the Ten Commandments. So this tells us that he was at least a little bit moralistic. But you know what? Good morals won't get you into heaven. Only sinlessness, complete absence of any sin anywhere, anytime, and complete righteousness will get you into heaven. And there's nowhere you can get that except from Jesus because it's salvation. He gives us both. He forgives all our sin, but then we're filled with all of his righteousness, the righteousness of God himself. That's what gets us into heaven. You know, Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes of the faith from 150 years ago, said that the most moralistic person compared to the holiness or the righteousness which is required to enter heaven is like comparing a dead corpse all dressed up in fine clothes and great makeup like you would see at an open casket funeral to a living, vibrant human being. You see, there is no comparison between moralism and the holiness that's required to get into God, to get into heaven. One, the moralism may look good on the outside, but it's still lifeless and it's completely dead on the inside, whereas the other, the righteousness Christ gives us, is full of new life on the inside. Those people coming up here Sunday, we're doing an outward expression of an inward reality of that new life that they had. And then that new life on the inside begins to show up on the outside in real change, not just in makeup and nice clothes. So Jesus here, perceiving what this man thought, gave him a challenge that he knew the man could not achieve. And that was to give up 
all the emblems of all of his achievements, like his money and his power, by selling everything that he had so that he would no longer be rich and powerful. And he also put before the man a moral challenge that he knew the man could not achieve, which was to give away everything that he had to the poor in order to get the man to realize that his achievements and his morality could not get him into the kingdom of God. You see, contrary to what some may tell you, Jesus isn't telling all of us in this verse to give away all that we have. That's a misapplication of what's going on here. He simply said that to this man because he knew that this man was trusting in his riches and his power and his morality and that he needed to set all of that aside and to instead trust fully and only in Jesus. You see, the basic call of Jesus on anyone's life is seen at the end of verse 21, and that is to follow him. That's the same call he gives his disciples in Matthew 4.19 where he says, come and follow me. Note that he doesn't say, though, come and follow rules like the Pharisees wanted to do, or come and follow and seek after riches and power and morality like the rich young ruler was doing. But he says, follow me. You see, that's an invitation into a personal, living, and vibrant relationship. Now, to follow Jesus also means a few other things. It means you're going to stop following whatever you were following before, which for most of us was ourself. We were following the desires of our own flesh and what we wanted to do. So to say to follow me implies something the Bible calls repentance. You're going to change direction. You're going to go from a self-directed life following all kinds of other things to a Jesus-directed life now following him. To follow him also means you're going to start going where he goes and doing what he does. He loves little children. So to follow him means you're going to sign up, if I can be so bold, and teach little children. Because that's where Jesus would be if he was here at this church. He'd be with the kids. To follow him means you're going to start to learn to think like him, which is all the more reason you should sign up for the women's conferences and the men's conferences and the Bible studies and learn how to think like Jesus. Now, anything that would get in the way of us doing that, which for this man was all of his stuff and all of his morality, needs to be let go of. That's the lesson here. It's not that we all need to give away all of our money. It's we need to give, give away and get rid of anything that would stand in the way of us doing what I just described, which is to follow Jesus. And instead, we need to come to Jesus like a little child trusting in him, humble, helpless, hungry, happy, with no pretenses, and fully giving ourselves, even our very identity, to him. And if there's anyone here like that this morning, and you're tired of trusting in yourself, or you're tired of trusting in your achievements, or trying to, to find more of them, or you're tired of trusting in your morality and, and all your rule-keeping, and you're willing to just simply trust in Jesus like a little child, wow. This is your morning. God sent you here to hear this message. And I would urge you to just do that this morning. Trust in him like a little child. And you can enter God's kingdom and begin following Jesus today. It's as simple as one of those little kids running up to Jesus. There's no entrance exam to see whether, like a Pharisee, you know all the rules. There's no examination of your life to see if you've been moral like this rich young ruler. There's no levels of achievement that you must reach first like the rich young ruler. 
And certainly don't wait until tomorrow because we never know what tomorrow will bring. Just come running to Jesus like a little kid. Let him touch your heart this morning just as he touched, as shocking as that was, these little children in March 10. Mark 10, excuse me, trust in him to save you, sit at his feet, and follow him. And for everyone else here who already knows him as Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 1.10 to make our calling and election sure. So I think after a message like this, after a section of scripture like this, this is a good morning for all the rest of us to do that. Maybe some of you might want to rededicate yourself to Christ. Because I want, to, want us to take, again, uh, uh, take a look again as we close at Mark 10, 15, very, very carefully. Jesus says there, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Those are strong words. Truly I say to you means it is really important. It's like saying, listen, pay attention, sit up. And then he says that unless we come into the kingdom like a child, we will not enter it at all. So if you've come to Jesus, but perhaps you've done it a little bit like a Pharisee, thinking it's all about you knowing all the rules, or maybe like the rich young ruler, maybe you've come to him with all of your achievements and your morality, and you're saying, what else must I do? And I'm just going to add Jesus to that, kind of like a booster rocket getting a, a spaceship into outer space. I've done a lot myself, but I just need that little booster, Jesus. And you've been sensing, though, that something isn't right. Something is missing, like that rich young ruler sensed. Turn away from all of that right now, I would urge you. Come to Jesus like a child, just as you are, with no pretenses, fully trusting in him alone to save you. Set aside, all of us need to do this, set aside all the pride we have and come to him humbly come dependent on him not in anything else come helpless knowing there's nothing you can do to save yourself and knowing that you don't deserve salvation come hungry for him and the righteousness that only he can give you jesus says again in the beatitudes blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness this righteousness that he gives and he says for they shall be satisfied and come with happiness, which truly only comes from the joy of knowing that you're saved. And lastly, come without any hypocrisy, fully surrendering to Jesus as Lord, and come to him finding your identity, who you truly are, only in your relationship with him. You see, all of us need to bring our real selves to the real Jesus, but we need to do it in the right way. And the right way, in fact, Jesus makes it very clear here, the only way is to come to him like a little child. Amen? So if anyone here has decided to do that today, or if you have questions as to how to do that, please come up afterwards and see us. Ben Kai and Daniel and myself will be up front uh, when the music starts playing along with some others. Let me close us in prayer. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the opportunity to um, lift your son Jesus up this morning, Lord. And Lord, we just place all this in your hands. We ask that you would do your mighty work, the thing that only you can do, Lord, which is to touch hearts. And I pray, earnestly pray, Lord, that you would touch hearts this morning, even my heart, Lord. Search me out. Show me if there's any ways in, in me where I've come to you like a Pharisee or come to you uh, like a moralistic person or someone who can achieve things, Lord. Let me set that all aside and just come to you hungry and empty like a little child. 
Lord, thank you that you accept us that way, that you accept us just as we are. We love you. We praise you. And may we worship you with all of our hearts now as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.